In thousands of schools in the summer of 1966, teachers were marched before their students and whipped with belts by their students. They were told as they got whipped that they were backward and old and their ideas had to go. Many, many others were forced under threat of violence to prostrate themselves in front of their students. Hello and welcome to Why Are We Talking About Rabbits? That's this podcast aimed at folks who might from time to time in our crazy culture feel a sense of dislocation. On this pod, we talk about heavy things lightly. We'll use theology, history, and philosophy in years of deeply immersive experiences to answer the question, how did we get here? So join me, John Hears, and our team of First Things field workers as we wonder aloud, why are we talking about rabbits? This is episode 18. This is what has changed anyway, and let's take a new world case study and tell a story. Have you ever thought about change? No, really, like, what, what is it? Change. If you Google make change, you find out there are like hundreds of thousands of organizations with the name change in their homepage IP. Change.org. That's political change. There's Make a Change Inc. This is about foster kids. There's Make a Change.world, which advocates for change using micro docs and movies. There's Make a Change International, hunger, poverty, war, illness. Let's change that. There's Make Change.net, about the environment. And then there's this interesting one called WAN, World Animal. Dot net, which does a nice job of describing what social change is. They say on their website, social movements like our own develop because there is a perceived gap between the current ethics and aspirations of people and the present reality we experience. Change. Something in our society makes this word very positive our new world society thinks of it as a positive thing. And I think uh, that website Juan does a nice job of saying, well, it's people trying to fill the gap between what is believed to be good and what is the present reality. So there's some ideas. Change is hot. But what do new worlders think about it? You know, and on this pod, you know that a new world league is a cultural ligament that holds a worldview together, and it's primarily our view, the worldview of new world people in the Western Hemisphere, Europe, who built a culture since the Enlightenment of the 1600s, the 17th century. It's a way of thinking. But what do they think about change and why? And then what about old worlders? What's changed to them? Old worlders being folks who live according to a worldview that we can call pre-enlightenment or non-enlightenment. What do they think about change? This pod's going to take a look. And we're going to use a case study from the 20th century. Today we're going to tell the story of the Red Guard. It's a cadre of youth who took to the streets in China to create change on behalf of Mao and his communist revolution. Let's do this, okay? Let's Take a look 
the notion of change in the old world by looking at change in a very new world communist cultural setting. Here we go. Let's tell the story. It's good. If you like history, I'll do my best to draw you in. Our story, which is very true, by the way, begins in a high school in Beijing, 1966. The school is Tsinghua. Forgive my Chinese pronunciations. I'm doing my best. Tsinghua Middle School. In China, high schools are called middle schools, so we're just going to skip that part and call them high schools, okay? Tsinghua High School had some really compelling students in the 60s. Smart kids, kind of a famous school. Kids who thought hard. One of these kids, a young man named Zhang Shangji, who incidentally would become one of China's most famous Muslim authors, well, Shang Zhang became rather upset at some articles in some local newspapers. It seems the articles were critical of a very popular play called Hai Rui Dismissed from Office. It was a very famous theatrical production with political overtones. It seems that for Zhang, the educated elite were too comfortable with the anti-Maoist sentiments found in the play. The generation before him weren't energetic enough and angry enough about the hidden bourgeois messages in this very popular play. So, the high school student, Zhang, started a school movement right there in Beijing to call out the people who he believed to be traitors to the principles of communism. He basically calls out the older generation. The older generation is the same one responsible for the revolution from just 20 years before. So the setting is young people calling out older people for not being attentive enough to these communist principles. They want change. So this change became known in time as the movement of the Red Guard. Zhang outfits fellow high school students all over Beijing with these old school olive military uniforms, and he gets these red armbands, and he starts something called the Red Guard. The Red Guards begin to publish, protest, and march. In Beijing, school administrators started to push back. Who's the kid calling out uh, heroes of the revolution, by the way? Who's that kid over there? What, is he crazy? Are these people crazy? Administrators from schools all across China began to refer to the Red Guards as counter-revolutionaries. Uh-oh. Whip, 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 whip. You don't want to be a counter-revolutionary in China under Mao because you're going against everything he worked for. Worse, they called them radicals. At this time in China, the spring of 1966, a radical was one who supported bourgeois notions of freedom, small r, republicanism. So that's bad. Counter-revolutionaries, radicals, that's who Zhang was getting labeled as. He and his high school cohorts had put themselves in the crosshairs of the older communist generation. They become a target for the Communist Party of China. Or had they? Because see, it turns out that Zhang and others like him 
including a famous young female administrator named Ni Yuangji. She worked at Peking University. Well, they had all gotten the attention of Chairman Mao himself. Mao, of course, was the leader of all leaders, the father of the Chinese Communist Revolution, the one who got the whole ball of wax rolling in 1949, again, 20 years before our story. Mao liked very much how the Red Guard attacked Chinese intellectuals as arrogant and old-fashioned. And he loved the way the Red Guard accused their teachers and their parents of bourgeois tendencies. So real quickly, bourgeoisie, you've heard this. Most of you probably know what it means. In French, it means those behind the wall. But for us on this pod, let's think about the bourgeoisie as those who have property they've or they've had it in their family before the revolution. They have a proper education and a general leg up when it comes to political influence. In our culture in America, think suburbs, the bourgeoisie. In short, Mao loved the Red Guard because they could be useful to him and his renewed attack on the bourgeoisie of China. He too, see, he saw the revolution as slowing down these 20 years since it started. And he, liked these kids, thought the older generation had lost some love for the communist vision of a better life. And so he did something really remarkable in 1966. Mao got a copy of the high school kids' manifesto, the one they'd written at that Beijing high school, and he broadcast that sucker on national radio. Prime time. And remember, radio is the thing in China in 1966. Then, in a most remarkable moment in Chinese history, he called for a rally. The rally, famously dubbed 818, it happened on the 18th of August, the rally saw nearly 1 million people, young people, congregate in Tiananmen Square. Mao appeared atop the Tiananmen square wearing an olive green military uniform (laughs) the one favored by the red guards and also a style he had not worn since he defeated the chinese nationalists in the early 1950s he's going back next he personally called 1500 red guards people red guard kids to join him on the platform right there teaming thousands of Red Guardsmen joined him, and Zhang, first among them, took a red armband and put it on Mao himself. Together, Chairman Mao and his new Red Guard darlings waved and applauded the nearly one million young people below. Mao had turned the little high school movement into a roiling force of nature. And with their energy, he would wage war on Confucian China. Wait, what's Confucian China, you might ask? Well, that's just what we'd call on this pod Old World China, the China of the dynasties, the China of the Great Wall, and the China of this really important idea called the Five Constants. Wait, what's a constant? What's a Five Constant? Confucius taught a bunch about a bunch, but among his most valued and vaunted teachings was that all members of a society 
all members of a society must practice and pay homage to the five eternal virtues, or what he called the five constants, or wuchang in, in Chinese. These five constants are, first, ren, benevolence, being kind, yi, righteousness or justice, li, proper rituals, ji, knowledge, and jin, integrity. These are the five constants, benevolence, justice, proper rituals, knowledge, and integrity. Along with the five constants, Confucius taught that there existed a type of societal glue that could be identified in five bonds, five bonds, B-O-N-D-S, or he sometimes called them eternal hierarchies that every society should strive to maintain. Those five bonds or relationships were, first, A, father and son. A father must provide wisdom to the son. The son must obey the father. Husband and wife. A husband must protect and honor his wife, while the wife must obey her husband. Older brother, younger brother, or siblings. Older sibling must create an example for the younger, but the younger must, that's right, you guessed it, obey the older. Ruler ruled. A ruler must be given the tools of power to rule his subjects. He must obey the mandates of heaven so that everyone benefits, but his subjects must, that's right, obey. The fifth eternal hierarchy or fifth bond is friend to friend. This is the only relationship of the five that's built entirely and squarely on equality. There is no obedience in this relationship. There's an absence of obedience. There's a mutual equality, friend to friend. For Confucius, these relationships constituted a type of celestial order, a list written into cosmic reality, a truth reflected in nature and written into the heart's of humankind. These things should not change. They're constant. These things could not change if stability and human flourishing were a goal of society, see? Except for the mutual equality of the friendship bond, these teachings of Confucius were clearly at odds with the ideology of equality. With Maoist ideology and Red Guard initiatives, these things did not go. But for Confucians, and remember, they're still the majority in 1966 in China. For Confucians, these profoundly old bonds weren't ideologies. They weren't thoughts in a person's mind. These hierarchies were the same as water or food. They're given. They're part of our world, given to us humans so that we might live a good life. But are they water and food, really? Father, son, obedience. Are they like water and food? Are, are they eternal? Are they essential for life? And if they aren't, aren't they just ways to control people? Ways to create inequality? And if they don't promote equality, shouldn't they be changed? Hmm. Those are the questions asked by the Red Guard. Yeah. Those are the questions posed by the French revolutionaries, right, 150 years before. This is the thinking of the founding fathers, 
right here in the United States. Even if the American founders had a more, shall we say, conservative version of the equality ideal. The French, the Soviets, the Russians, the Americans, they're all asking the same questions about equality. And this equality equation was the new principle that Mao and his Red Guards set out to instill in every Chinese town and city in 1966. They all added up to what what we know now as the Cultural Revolution in China. You see, old things stood squarely in the way of new things. And now, Mao was coming for the old things. The official persecution of old things had a not-so-catchy name. It was called the sweeping away of the four olds. The four olds, O-L-D-S. That's what they called it. The four olds were, one, old customs, two, old culture, three, old habits, four, old ideas. This language appeared everywhere during the Cultural Revolution. Sweep away the old. The vague nature of these terms allowed the Red Guards to target all types of cultural icons. Confucius's grave was torn up and vandalized. The Red Guards dug up the burial site of the ancient Ming dynasty and proceeded to desecrate and finally burn the skeletal remains of the emperor and empress Wan Li. Family genealogy books, like little family histories, a tradition in Confucian China and well-known to pretty much every Chinese family, were bound and burned by marauding red guards. Taoist temples, Western-style Christian churches, anything, quote, religious, burp, desecrated. Parents were reported to authorities by their own red guard children. Everyone was forced to read something called the Little Red Book, a book of Mao's most famous sayings, more than 280 million were published between 1966 and 1974, outpacing even the Bible as the world's single bestseller for this period. Most interesting to me, as an educator, a former educator now running this foundation, is what it looked like in the schools. In thousands of schools in the summer of 1966, teachers were marched before their students and whipped with belts by their students. They were told as they got whipped that they were backward and old and their ideas had to go. Many, many others were forced under threat of violence to prostrate themselves in front of their students and beg forgiveness. Many, many more, I don't know more, but many, many other educators eventually couldn't take the shame. This was very, very profoundly traumatic. They committed suicide, and not just a couple, okay? In Shanghai, more than 800 men and women killed themselves in just two months. In what was now being called the Red August, Mao issued a decree to Beijing policemen to, quote, stop all interventions in the affairs of the Red Guard. You see, people couldn't understand, wait a minute, can they just go beat that person up? Well, there was a fight. And Mao told the police, "Uh, leave the Red Guard alone. The leash had been loosed. In Beijing, more than 1,700 Confucian elders, just old Chinese people, were beaten to death at the hands of the youth. Students clamored for a re-education program, and in turn, the CPC, the Communist Party of China created a re-education camps 
all across the provinces. Places where parents and grandparents were sent against their will to learn the new ways. And of course, unlearn the four olds. For 10 years, 10 years, millions and millions of people were sent to the countryside to be reprogrammed in the ways of the new China. Change was underway. And here's when it gets interesting. Here's where we get back to our question about change. You see, during all of this, the original student movement led by Zhang and his prodigious pals at Tsingyu High School back in Beijing, that movement began to fracture. Competing student groups in the high schools and in the universities, they began to argue over which group was most pure. A radical Red Guard group called Sheng Luwien, sorry, Sheng Luwien, this radical Red Guard group started to attack the PLA. That's the People's Liberation Army. And that was a bad idea. You see, the PLA was the standing army that protected all Chinese legislators, all Chinese Communist Party members, and pretty much the nation as a whole. Even Mao, when the Sheng Lu Wien attacked the PLA, even Mao was like, nah, we're not doing that. And well, the Red Guard began to be seen as a threat. Executions of the Red Guard followed. In a place called Guangxi province, by the year 1969, the Red Guard was being sent away in the millions. Some say as many as 2 million were executed in the next 10 years. By 1979, untold amounts of former Red Guardsmen had been killed. Things had changed. Yeah. This time, though, they had changed back. The problem, of course, is that what is now new will soon be that which is old. That's a conundrum for people who want change. Vague change is really a stand-in for give me some power. Change is coming, but nothing new will remain as such, and in turn will become useless and a target for destruction sometime in the future. This is evolution. This is the very nature of the modern revolution. All the new world revolutions are built on the evolutionary mindset. And in turn, all of them must succumb to their own ideology. Change. And this is what happened to China. And what does the old world think of all this? Well, they go the other way. True old world thinkers, these, you know, wise elders, they tend to go the other way. I've just gotten back from Sierra Leone where I hunkered down and helped install two of our new field workers there. Peace to you, Shane and Jake, living now in Sierra Leone, working hard on our projects. Well, I sat a lot in Freetown in quarantine. I was able to consider the culture all around me. I even got a good chance to dive in and chat about these things with other Sierra Leoneans. Check out our last pod. I guess it's pod 17. Their conversations about what is good sound oddly similar, by the way, to the Red Guard, but in reverse. 
You see, they say only the ancestors have answers for the future. So in that way, all of society must listen to those who speak on behalf of the dead. Looking forward means looking back. The graves offer the future to the young. The grave offers the wisdom necessary for a move into the future. But of course, the grave here is just a stand-in for the spirit of the dead, who in old world societies are not dead at all, but alive in the hearts of the living. You feel all that mysticism? This is how it works in the old world. Which means, of course, that the living must lower themselves in obedience to the spirit of the dead that lives within them. Right? Let me say that again. If youth must, in fact, obey the wisdom of the old, of the dead, and the wisdom of the dead resides in their heart, youth must submit themselves. There's that obedience concept again. But this is an attack on individualism for new world people like myself. This is an attack on my freedom or something like that. Quote, freedom. After all, if the way to a good life is simply back, if the way to a good life is to obey the wisdom of my elders, what's the point of my freedom and my mind and my creativity and all that stuff? Why must I have a master if I can find the answers for myself? You feel the tension? Yeah, that's the tension. That's new world versus old world. That's the point of this pod. In our story about the Red Guard, notice how fast the communist leaders moved to purify. I mean, you're talking about not even 20 years. You see, in the new world, and the communist world is a very, very new world, everything happens fast because everything has to happen within the lifetime of a single individual because the single individual is the only one that really matters. Things have to happen fast. These changes are incredibly quick in the modern age, especially compared to the expanse of human history. We see it in communist Russia as well. It's the same thing, purge after purge after purge after purge. Right? The image is always that of people clawing their way up the tower, up the ladder, the leader getting closer and closer to the top, but so tired by the climb that his competitor, only slightly less tired, can reach him and pull him by the pant leg and throw him into the abyss, therefore asserting his own strength and ascendancy until the next man reaches him and his pant leg, and the competition continues. This is the nature of of change in the political world of modernity. It's the nature of change in the natural, animal, evolutionary world. Or at least, that's what it sounds like in the world explained to us by modern Darwinian scientists. In the end, for many modern New Worlders, change is simply about becoming the next best tip of the spear the latest, most essential version of human strength. For folks like Confucius, this way of thinking was very dangerous. Change for Confucius and the old China was only good if it was toward an eternal and transcendent, a constant good. A god? A god? Just throw an extra 
O in there to create the word good, good God, kind of the same. Confucius didn't use vocabulary like God. He didn't use God language the way we think of it in the West today. But he firmly believed in things eternal, things he he called, quote, ground in celestial reality. Which things are these? How can we know? Oh, it's like a whole new thing. Well, the new world mind hates this question. And so, mostly, since Francis Bacon and his utopian quest for a perfect society, the question about celestial reality and transcendent constants and all those things that Plato talked about, that questions and those questions, well, they've just been sort of ignored. And in its place, we've left a little bookmark, like a place that, oh, we'll get back there one day. But first, let's get down the road and acquire all these cool things that modern man now has access to. It's like been ignored in the new world. Maybe that's the nature of change, actually. Maybe change is just returning to that bookmark. Maybe all change is pointless unless it leads back to something essential. That's that old world concept of the grave. Maybe change is just getting back to what we've always been. That feels old world to me, for better or worse. And that feels very different than the very new world story of the Red Guard. But our time on this pod has come to an end. I hope you enjoyed my little Red Guard story as a way to understand change. Check out our pod notes for more on this incredible saga. It's just fascinating, the Red Guard and the Communist Cultural Revolution. Yeah, and check out something else, too. It's a little self-plug here. We've just published a book, First Things Foundations on Amazon. It's called Three Souls. It's my book. It's called Three Souls, an Ancient Uptown Love Triangle. It's a love story, but really it's a story about revolution, but this time in the New York City public schools. And it's a story about a woman who goes through a lot of change and the men who love her and the violence breaking out all around them. I'd love for you to check that out. That'll be in the pod notes as well. Lots going on. Back from Africa. Folks over there working hard on our projects. America facing an election. Yikes. By the way, I just want to tell you about social media in Sierra Leone. Everything you see on social media that you wish you hadn't seen, Sierra Leoneans are seeing too. (laughs) So... The internet that you know is the internet that Sierra Leoneans know and Georgians know and Vietnamese folks know. And that's freaky. And that's different. Okay. Shenny's Gaggy Marjos. That means to you, the victory. Yeah. To you, the victory. That's said often at a KP table or a Supra. It's the type of party it is that's held in Georgia, the Georgian Republic. By the way, Daniel Paternos, one of our First Things field workers and one of our current wonderful employees, he just wrote a great article on the mysticism and symbology, is that a word? The symbolism of the Capy 
Supra dinner table. It's over at Jonathan Pajot's Symbolic World website. Go check it out. Great article about what's happening at this dinner where I say, Shinny's Gagimarjos. So, thanks for coming along. Waltar is produced by Andrew Schwarkin, Daniel Paternos, and our pod is brought to you by the creators of First Things Foundation. That's our nonprofit that lives and works in some of the world's most impoverished places, immersing there in order to create momentum for local change makers, folks we call impresarios, brilliant people on the ground. Well, we go find, support, serve, and push alongside their best projects so that they can create their vision for a better life. Share Watar with friends. Hit us up with solid reviews on iTunes. Do that, please. And everywhere you get your podcast, make a little note. Tell people about us. Your love for us allows us to love and serve others. Nachwandis. Hasta luego. Kambufo. Bye-bye. And peace out.